The following message was recorded during the Friends of Israel 2010 National Prophecy Conference season. These meetings were held in Winona Lake, Indiana and Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For other audio resources from the Friends of Israel, visit us at foi.org. What does God's tomorrow have to say to us about man's today? Now, what what I mean by that is, uh, you know, God distinguishes, one of the ways in which God most dramatically distinguishes himself on the pages of Scripture is his ability to know the future. God and God alone knows the end from the beginning and in fact has crafted that end and is moving methodically toward that end. And we have this remarkable drama on the pages of Scripture. And there are many who uh, in our day out of uh, one... uh, uh, Well, there are many in evangelical circles who insist that eschatology is something that we ought not to focus on, that it's only divisive and unnecessary and so on. And you know very well that uh, about one-fourth of the the verses in the Bible were prophetic, that is, they were predictive when they were written. And one of the ways in which God most clearly distinguishes himself, as I say, from all the pretender gods, when God wants to, dare I say, forgive me, uh, spread his tail feathers. You know what I'm saying? As a, as a peacock, when he really wants to show the kind of God he, he is, what does he do? In Isaiah 44 and 45, for instance, You want to know what kind of God I am? I will tell you the name of the man, Cyrus, who I'm going to raise up to deliver uh, my people. And so God's capacity to know the future is tremendous. Not to know the future, to to reveal the future is is not only important as to, not only does it give us insight into what kind of God he is, but uh, it also, of course, is very important to the way we live. My theology prof used to say that nothing shapes the way you live today more than what you believe about tomorrow. And, uh, and, and we live in what I'm going to call here man's today. In other words, God in his careful purposes and, and, and providences has uh, uh, allowed this period when uh, his name is defiled and disrespected and disregarded and all that is wicked is, 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 uh, is, is honored and so on. And uh, this is that, that's man's today. As a matter of fact, let me go back to my thought. What does, the, what, what, do God's, what does God's tomorrow, what the Bible has to say about God's tomorrow, and where I'm going to take you in just a couple minutes to try to focus on God's tomorrow, and there's so many places we go, but I want to go to these two throne room scenes, these remarkable scenes where where, where the, the, the heavenly throne room is assembled, and uh, one called the Son of Man, one like unto a Son of Man, appears and is dispatched to, uh, to establish a kingdom. We'll come to that in just a moment. But the point is, we live in what I like to think of today as man's today. Now, I've talked about this before in these, uh, in these sacred precincts, but I'm going to very quickly ask you to go back to Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel story. Because I am convinced that there is a, a, a uh, oh, how can I say, there is a, a very, very handy uh, summary. In two words, God sums up man's today. What this fall, you know what? I'm convinced that what Genesis 3 is to fallen humankind, Genesis 11 is to fallen human culture. 
That is, you want to go and you want to understand uh, what fallenness is all about, what it is to, 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 to be a son of Adam. You go to Genesis 3, you trace that narrative, you see the antipathy there between, between fallen man and God, and, and you understand something of fallen mankind. Well, after the flood, uh, as the ark came to rest, eight human beings emerged with a mandate. And that mandate, I believe, was to overspread the earth and to uh, develop cultures which would glorify the God of heaven. And that was their, that, that by the way, is our, 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 our mandate, our stewardship. But there, that was a, a careful mandate given to Noah and his family to, to raise up culture that would honor God. High-handedly, they rebelled against that. And in Genesis 11, they said, and you'll see it in Genesis 11 and verse 4. I'm going to be quick here. I just want the one reference. Genesis 11 and 4, it says, They said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower. Now, again, I've gone through this before, so I'm going to be very quickly, not all of you are here, but, but, uh, but I think that you can, you can reduce fallen human culture to these two wicked strategies, a city and a tower. And uh, the tower, of course, is religion. It's, it's in the historical record. It's what we remember as a ziggurat. And it was a place, the Bible says, that they, they determined to build a tower in, whose top would be in the heavens. The old King James has, has his, his top would be in the heavens. And out of that, has, uh, has, we've kind of come up with this Jack and the Beanstalk thing going on, you know, and that's not what's happening here at all. You know that. They're not trying to ascend into the heavens and so on. Uh, one very viable translation is, in whose top are the heavens, as if perhaps they are worshiping the heavenly bodies and so on, which is man's, has uh, been a, a wicked impulse from the very beginning. But the point is that the tower is, is, that Im, is, is, is an expression of religion in defiance of God. And let me just tell you that every false religion, every wicked false set of religious ideas that was ever conceived in the mind of this or that demon is nothing more than an, ex- an attempt by fallen man to make himself comfortable in his sin and rebellion, having rejected the true God who has put himself on display in such a way that no man can escape it. But because fallen men are scandalized by that God, they erect this or that system of false ideas, which is really nothing more than an attempt to make themselves comfortable in their rebellion and their sin. Now, that's the tower. On the other hand, it says, let us, let us build us a city and a tower. And the city is, in a word, commercialism. It is that notion that in point of fact, man's life does consist in the abundance of his possessions. Folks, I'm telling you, this is insidious and it is basic to the culture, in, to the fallen culture, which has risen up uh, in defiance of God, which I think is the, born right there in Genesis 11. You remember that in Luke chapter 12, Jesus said, and I'm telling you, this is so m- remarkably counterintuitive to our culture. Jesus said, man's life does not consist of the, in the, uh, the abundance of his possessions. And, and, and the world is absolutely convinced that that is exactly where life is to be found. 
Now, let me tell you what kind of brought me up short. And I, again, I, I, very quickly, I, 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 God in his sweet providences has given me opportunity several times to teach through the book of Revelation. I cherish the book. I, it is such a magisterial expression of this, or, or description of this end-time drama, and it's built with such, that is, the, the book of Revelation itself is crafted so remarkably, where, I, as you trace it, a couple, several months ago, I took some time, and I just tried to, tried to tease out of the book of Revelation those elements of the narratives, of the narrative, which seem designed very carefully to build the drama. And as you go through the book, it's amazing how the tension builds. And you have, and, and by the way, you're familiar with this, but uh, in the book of Revelation, uh, you have in, uh, in uh, uh, chapter 1 and verse 19, you have that outline where John is told to write the things which he has seen. That's chapter 1, right? The vision of Jesus in his kingdom glory. And then write the things which are. That's Revelation 2 and 3, those churches, those seven letters to seven churches, which to one degree or another, in one way or another, characterize this church age. But then write the things which shall be hereafter. And in Revelation 4 to 19, if you read the Bible literally, if you take the book of Revelation uh, as it was written, by the way, time out real quickly. One of the things, I was talking to a friend last night, one of the things that would be for me so difficult if I were not a literalist premillennialist, is it would be so hard for me to have the kind of contempt for one book of the Bible that the amillennial community does. They just don't know what to do with the book of Revelation. It drives them crazy. And, 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 and that would be so hard on my soul spirit to be that sideways to a book of the Bible. Whereas if you take it for what it says, if you take it literally... It is, in fact, this marvelous, again, nothing, nothing affects the way you live today more than what you believe about tomorrow. And here's this book which lays out that end-time drama. But it does with, it's so with such magisterial literary craft, and, and it builds toward this. this but, but here's the point. I was going to say, in Revelation 4 to 19, you have the, the things which shall be hereafter. And, of course, in chapter 19, you have that glorious descent of the white horse rider who finally appears to wipe clean the, the wickedness of this earth and establish his kingdom. But in, 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 the, in the drama of Revelation, beginning with chapter 6, actually, the actual narrative is only being moved forward when you have either a seal being broken or a trumpet being sounded or a bowl being emptied. Remember this? You have the seven seals. And then, of course, that issues into these seven trumpets. And then the last trumpet opens up this seven bowls. Now, my point is the drama is actually moving forward only when the seals or the trumpets or the bowls are, are, are before us. And the last bowl, is poured out in Revelation 16. And what, what always strikes me in the book of Revelation is that you have this huge, as I say, this tension and this drama just builds until finally the last bowl has been poured out and everything is in readiness and, and, and Jesus is about to descend in great victory and so on. And then everything is suspended and you have these two remarkable chapters, chapter 17 and chapter 18. And chapter 17, you'll recall, is the destruction of religious 
Babylon. That's the tower. Remember back here in Genesis? Let us build a city and a tower. And so now in Revelation 17, before Jesus descends, the, 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 the narrative stops and you have one of these marvelous insets that are so characteristic, these stage-setting uh, chapters that are so characteristic of the book of Revelation, and we are made to understand that what is about to happen is the destruction of the tower of religious Babylon, this, this harlot who has, who has uh, uh, infected the world all throughout human history and has, has, has consorted in the most wicked ways with human governments in such a way as to, as to uh, persecute the truth, to, to resist the truth and so on, right? So in Revelation 17, you have the destruction of religious harlot. You have rejoicing. The angelic host is rejoicing because at last the, 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 the religious Babylon, the harlot, the tower, is about to be destroyed. But then in Revelation 18, you have commercial Babylon. And let me just take you there real quickly. I'm spending too much time, but just real quickly. Revelation 18, just to make my point. My point is, folks... I'm asking a question. Go to Revelation 18, but while you do, let me, just because I'm going to take you several places. I don't want to confuse you. I'm asking the simple question, what does God's tomorrow, and we're going to go to those throne room scenes in just a moment, at least the first of them, to look at it. But what does God's tomorrow have to tell us about man's today and about this fallen culture in which we live? And just to take a moment and characterize that culture, I'm saying that you can... The Bible, I would, I would argue that the Bible reduces man's today, this fallen culture in which we live, to these two realities, a city and a tower. And they are both going to be destroyed. And you have that scene in Revelation 17 and 18. In Revelation 18, let me just read to you here, in, beginning in, in, in chapter 18 and verse 1, where, and again, I'm going to say it one more time, forgive me, that this, our... our we, we read this almost with, with, with bated breath. I mean, we are, everything is in readiness for chapter 19. And that's where we're headed, this marvelous descent of Jesus. But before that happens, the story is suspended, and we have in these two chapters these remarkable insights designed to help us understand precisely what is at stake here. And what is at stake is God's final, long-awaited victory over the fallen culture which has prevailed and in which we live. So in Revelation 18, he says, After these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory, and he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen and is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, a cage for every unclean and hated bird, for all the nations, now all throughout human history, but but, well, I'll come back to it. But for all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And watch this. The merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And uh, he, goes, he, he rejoices over the fact that she's to be destroyed, this, 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 this harlot which is commercial Babylon. Drop down to verse 11. This is where it gets amazing. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. Folks, now I want you to get this. This is amazing to me. In this scene, the earth 
is falling in. We have already had six, we have already had seven seals broken with all of the natural disaster. We've had seven trumpets sounded, which have alerted the earth to the fact that judgment is at hand. We've had these awful bowls spilled out. And now with the earth literally, and I don't use the word literally carelessly. I mean literally. I, I, I sometimes, you know, it literally broke my heart. I always think, no, it didn't literally break your heart. You know what I'm saying? Literally means something. And it means uh, this is not figurative. The world is falling apart. It is crashing in. And the merchants are grieving over the fact that nobody will buy their merchandise anymore. Do you see the measure with which this commitment to the idea that there is, there is genuine meaning and satisfaction in what the world has to offer has gripped the hearts of these people? As a matter of fact, it goes on in verses 12 and 13. I will not read it, but it lists almost all of the fine uh, commodities and delights that were available in that world. As a matter of fact, you could write over verses 12 and 13 the abundance of her, his possessions. In other words, when Jesus said that man's life does not consist in the abundance of that which he possesses. And, and I'm, I'm saying that I'm, I'm convinced that it is the stuff of fallenness to be convinced and to live your life out as if, in fact, life consists in the abundance of that which we possess. Folks, it is so easy. And I'm going to balance this off in just a moment. I do not, be I, I believe God created this earth to be enjoyed. Uh, Ecclesiastes 5, verses 18 to 20. I love that passage. But, but it's where Solomon comes to the end of his argument through those first five chapters of the book. And he says, this is, this is the sum of it that God is pleased when for it is good and right and fitting with the character of God for man to eat and drink and enjoy the fruit of all of his labor. God intends for you. God's heart is thrilled when you enjoy the good things that this world has to offer. But the fact of the matter is that if you look to what this world has to offer for either satisfaction or security, and these are the two besetting sins, I can find happiness in what this world, in the goods of this world. And somehow I can have so much laid up for myself that I can be absolutely secure. You will not find happiness or security, satisfaction or security in this world. That makes sense to you? So why do I get myself exercised? My point is that I think this is so easy to fall into. And now you have this scene where, where, where the world is falling apart and, and men are moaning and, 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 and heartbroken because nobody will buy our merchandise, our beautiful merchandise. And listen. And then look at verse 14. The fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you. And remember Jesus' parable of the man who, who tore down his barn and built greater ones and said, surely I'm, and, uh, and, and tonight your soul. Then who shall be all these things? In other words, it can be taken from you in a moment. I lose my way. The fruit that your soul has longed for has gone from you and all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you and you shall find them no more at all. The merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment. Now get the picture. She, they, they're standing back. Evidently, there are great cataclysms in the sea and they fled and now they're looking back and seeing this great divine judgment, this, this cataclysm that is... And you know what their heart is broken for? Folks, wouldn't you think at that moment that somebody would say... 
Maybe we've had our priorities all wrong. Maybe we should have honored the God whose goodness provided these things for us instead of worshiping the things themselves. No, 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 that's not what they do. The merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing and saying, not God forgive us, but alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great riches came to nothing. And every shipmaster and all who travel by ships and sailors and as many as trade in the sea stood at a distance and cried out. And they, they saw the smoke of her burning, judgmental burning, God at work. And they said, what is like this great city? Now my point is that in, 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 in Genesis 11, you have rebellious Babel. And what they say is, let's build us a city and a tower. In Revelation, I think these are deliberate bookends. And in Revelation 17 and 18, what you have is God carefully describing the fact, or carefully describing the scene when he, in fact, destroys, first of all, the tower, religious Babylon, and then the city, commercial Babylon. Now, what I'm saying to you is that this is... And, and, and I already said this, but let me just <laughs> go back to it. Folks, I do not believe it is wrong for you and me to enjoy the good things of this life. Uh, l- let me take you to Ecclesiastes 5, just to balance this, and then we'll go to Daniel 7. Now, let me make sure you understand what I'm saying. I, I think when you, when you, if you want to characterize uh, the culture, the fallen culture which has dominated throughout human history, from Babylon to, uh, uh, to the descent of Jesus, and which is most dominant during what we call the times of the Gentiles, when there are these four Gentile godless kingdoms who dominate the earth. If you want to cult- characterize that culture, you can represent it as the city and the tower. And folks, you and I ought to be, look... <laughs> When you think of the tower, you think of false religion, the mosque, the kingdom hall, the, uh, the Christian science reading room. You drive by those, and there is an impulse, intuitive repulsion. Is there not on your heart? Don't you think, oh, such darkness, such wickedness, such a hand raised in the, in, in, in the face of God. When you think of the city, that's the tower, and we all have an intuitive repulsion. When you think of the city, how does the city, how does commercial Babylon, where, where do we see its most concrete expression in our culture? It's the shopping mall. Now, we don't feel quite the measure of intuitive repulsion when we drive by the shopping mall. Is that fair to say? Am I the only guy in the room who confess that? <laughs> Now, uh, what I'm trying to say, though, is that you look around, at, you, you walk through those shopping malls, and they are absolute temples to acquisitiveness. Acqu- to be acquisitive is to desire to acquire. Acquisitiveness is longing to have, because if I have more, there will be some fullness in my soul that I don't have today. It is 
absolutely a lie of Satan? I'm not saying the shopping mall is intrinsically, and that's why I got you in Ecclesiastes 5 real quickly. But I'm saying that I think that you and I need to to develop a sense, a very careful sense, a biblically defined sense of what fallen culture is. And we need to resist it carefully. And, and it's not, I, again, I'm going to say it, I don't believe it's wrong to enjoy it, but if you are looking for satisfaction or security in what this world has to offer, you are part of the city. That's what's going down in Revelation 17 and 18. I, I may have told you before, but there was a crisis moment in my life some four, maybe five or six years ago. And I was reading a book, and I, I enjoyed the book. It plays to different reviews, and I'll, I'll defend it uh, in part, but it was, uh, it was a worldview book. It was Nancy Piercy's Total Truth. And she spent a great deal of time uh, uh, making the point that it is terribly, terribly easy for Christians who have a very well-defined worldview, who really understand what a biblical worldview is, but it's so easy for us to live out a secular worldview, to fall into the habits of life and pattern in very seductive ways. And one of the ways that she really uh, got on people about in the book was this idea that we need to absolutely plan our whole lives so that we'll be entirely secure. Now, I know I may be stomp, uh, you know, I may go to preaching here in a moment, but, but there was a major uh, move that we needed to make as a family, and I just had, had refused to do it because I couldn't see how I could maintain you know, financial security down through the rest of my life and so on. And, and uh, I just got confronted by the verse where Jesus says, take no thought for the morrow. I don't believe that means we, 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 uh, we ought to do foolish things. I don't think we have a right to cast ourselves, if you don't mind, off the pinnacle of the temple. But by the same token, uh, if in fact this idea that we can, from the world, from whatever source, find security in this life, that's the city. Is that fair to say? I'm not getting very many nodded heads. <laughs> I just think that we need to, we need to, uh, well, my point is, well, let me take you to Ecclesiastes 5, as long as I took you there. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 18. Uh, and this is the sum total of where Solomon has been taking us in the first half of the book. And he says, here's what I've seen. You know what, I've got to do something here, as long as I did this. Go to Ecclesiastes 1, because if you're really going to appreciate Ecclesiastes 5, you've got to start with Ecclesiastes 1, where Solomon, King Solomon, says in verse 13, and this is sort of the, 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 this is the uh, uh, summary of what he had attempted to do in his life before he turned back to God. I believe that Ecclesiastes was written by King Solomon. I believe it was written late in his life, and I believe it was written after he had repented of the carelessness of his life. But in verse 13, he says, I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. And I think the point is leaving God out. You leave God out, and you look to this world as a source of satisfaction or security. And this is, and by the way, there was never a man in human history who had greater capacity to ransack this world for all that it has to offer than the man Solomon. 
if it was a function of wisdom, if it was a function of riches or power or prestige or, 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 or a pleasure, whatever the world has to offer, Solomon was more equipped to ransack it than anybody perhaps who ever lived. And after careful effort, he says in verse 13, this is what I discovered, that this burdensome task God has given to the sons of men by which they may be exercised. Now, uh, I'm reading the New King James. Actually, in the Hebrew, Solomon uses the same word twice. He says, basically, it is a sorry business, burdensome task, that God has given men to be busy with. He uses that word busy two times. He says, you leave God out and you ransack the world for all it's worth and you will come to the conclusion that life is a sorry business that you're going to be kept busy with. You're going to give all your time and energy and effort to find some, some, some fleeting dream of happiness and it's not going to be there. It's a sorry business that God has given men to be busy with. Now you go over to Ecclesiastes 5, and again and again throughout this section, Solomon has said that God is pleased, it is consistent with who God is and God's purposes for you to enjoy the fruit of your labor. But then he says this, in verse 18 of chapter 5, he says, here's what I've seen. Again, it is good. There's no word in the Bible which more thoroughly sums up the person of God than the word good. And so that little tiny English word, when he says it is good, it means it is absolutely consistent with who God is, and it is fitting, it is morally appropriate for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life which God gives him. And then the, the New King James has, for it is his heritage. Now the point of that verse is, it is absolutely appropriate for you to enjoy the good things that God has given you as long as you understand that they are, in fact, a gift from God. And he goes on to say, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he also, the idea is, gives him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage, to rejoice in the labor. The power to enjoy it is also the gift of God. You see that? Folks, it's, it, it, you, you make it, <laughs> I'm getting lost in this, but it's so practical. Look, here are, here are two wealthy men. The one man is lost. He finds all of his sense of personal worth and satisfaction in his wealth. He hoards his wealth. He, 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 again, this is where he is going to find satisfaction. He's a victim of his wealth. He's afraid that it might be gone. He's afraid that somebody down the street has more wealth than he does. He's, he, he cannot enjoy his wealth. Here's another man. He's wealthy. He's a believer. He knows that it's only a stewardship from God, and he uses it wisely, and he gives him opportunity to help others and so on. And if his wealth is gone tomorrow, it'll matter not, because after all, he knows that he has been called by God simply to serve him. That man has the capacity to enjoy his wealth. You see the point? Where you put God where he belongs in your life, you give God his place, and you can enjoy the good things that he gives you. And then he concludes, and I've got to be done, we'll go to Daniel 7 tomorrow morning, but he concludes in verse 20, he says, for he, that is, the man who gives God his place and recognizes that all these good things I'm going to say it one more time. We live in man's today. It's a fallen culture. 
and it is twisted and distorted and perverted in all of its priorities and values. But that is not to say that this is not God's earth. And in fact, there are many things which he has provided which he intends for you to enjoy. And his heart is, it's good and fitting for you to enjoy it. But the man, verse 20, who gives God his proper place and who acknowledges that not only is God the giver of all good things, but he and he alone, God and God alone, has the capacity to give you the capacity to enjoy those good things. That's the guy he's talking about in verse 20. He will not dwell unduly on the days of his life. Why? Because God keeps him busy. Now, the reason I started in verse 13 of chapter 1 is because that's the same word. You leave God out, and life is a sorry busyness that you're busy with. But you give God the place that he deserves, the place that he demands as your creator, and he will keep you busy with the joys of your heart. I always think that's not a bad deal. That's a God worth following. If you give him the place. Now, I never got to the throne room. I will. But let me just say, in Daniel 7 and in Revelation 4 and 5, you have two throne room scenes which give us remarkable insight into God's tomorrow and what he is going to do with this fallen culture. And we need to live in light of those throne room scenes. I'm going to get to them tomorrow morning. But understand this that the world in which we live, and I'm calling it man's today, is a fallen, rebellious, high-handedly angry culture, which not only rejects God, but which is scandalized by God and his claim and his standards on, 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 on their lives. And I think you can reduce it to a city and a tower, to this notion that life consists in that which we possess, and to an attempt to erect false systems of religiosity which make us comfortable in that rebellion. And I think that God's tomorrow has a lot to say to us about man's today. Does that make sense? I'll pick it up there tomorrow. Let me have a word of prayer with you. Father, we thank you that you are a God who uh, sits on the throne of history, that history is going to unfold in a way that will, in fact, bring glory to your name, not only in this age, but all throughout the, the epics of eternity as we struggle uh, even then to understand who you are and as we sit and, 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 and learn your character. And we'll do that against the backdrop of what you have wrought in this age. So, Father, we thank you that, that your tomorrow has a great deal today to say about the today in which we live. And help us to live that out, and we'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen.